to season three of Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing and to serve our community. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is Wayne Grady. Wayne is an acclaimed editor, translator, and author, and a longtime friend of the festival. He's the author of 14 books of nonfiction, the translator of more than a dozen novels into English from French, and the editor of many literary anthologies of fiction and nonfiction. His most recent publication is The Good Father, his acclaimed third novel. Alyssa York calls it a riveting stay-up-late read that doubles as a deeply moving treatise on familial love. In just a moment, Wayne will introduce us to our guest today, the inimical George Eliot Clark, whose most recent publication is Where Beauty Survived, an Africadian memoir. Here's Wayne Grady in conversation with George Eliot Clark. George Eliot Clark is a poet, playwright, literary critic, and university professor. He was born in Three Mile Plains, one of Nova Scotia's rural black loyalist communities near Windsor, Nova Scotia, in 1960, and moved with his parents to Halifax, first to a street in the relatively quiet suburbs, and then for 12 years into Halifax's North End. He has degrees from the University of Waterloo, Dalhousie, and a PhD from Queen's, and and honorary degrees from at least five other universities. In 2003, he was appointed the inaugural E.J. Pratt Professor of Canadian Literature at the University of Toronto, where he still teaches. And in 2013 to 14, he was the William Lyon Mackenzie King visitor, Visiting Professor in Canadian Studies at Harvard. He was Toronto's Poet Laureate from 2012 to 2015 and the Canadian Parliamentary Poet Laureate in 20, <laughs> I have 2026, 2016. <laughs> Uh, and 17. He's published 17 books of poetry, two novels, and four plays. The list of awards George has been given is a long one and includes the Governor General's Award for Poetry in 2002 for uh, for execution poems and the Dartmouth Book Award for Fiction in 2006. He also received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2012. He's an officer of the Order of Canada, has been awarded the Order of Nova Scotia, and has received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Dalhousie University Alumni Association. Please join me in welcoming George Eliot Clark. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Wayne. That was a great intro. And I'm very happy to be here uh, to converse about where beauty survived with you. Yes, survived in the past tense. When I was writing to you, I wrote where beauty survives by mistake, but it's past tense, which is kind of sad in a way because it implies in a sense that beauty no longer survives. But I think it, I think you might want to speak to that. I, I wanted to start by asking you about the title of the book, because uh, where does beauty survive? Where did beauty survive? It's a, it's a great question. And it, and it goes right to the heart of my genealogical, uh, biographical, of course, uh, familial, historical existence, in the <laughs> sense that, not to belabor the point, but I'm descended from people who came to Canada, colonial Canada, colonial Nova Scotia, either as slaves, as Mm -hmm. enslaved people, or as people who were fleeing 
slavery elsewhere, but still landing in a, in a colony, Nova Scotia, where slavery was still legal until 1834. Mm -hmm. uh, and so no matter what one's personal status was, whether you were actually free or whether you were still an enslaved person, all black people were treated as if they were slaves. Yeah. And that kind of uh, uh, discriminatory, brutal, prejudicial, exploitative uh, uh, behavior towards black people, people of African heritage, continued from uh, the late 18th century right up uh, to the current times, right up to the present. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in thinking about where beauty survived, I'm thinking about, about beauty, notions of beauty, notions of, of aesthetic accomplishment being maintained despite this pervasive atmosphere of alienation, discrimination, prejudice, uh, marginalization, and so on. And, and that um, uh, one of the uh, 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 aspects of the search for justice and the search for liberty and the search for equality was, and the search for prosperity, also the search for dignity, the search for beauty, all of these words ending in, or concepts ending in T-Y. Right. And I think they're all balled up together. I don't think you can have any of the above without having all of the above. Uh, let's, let's, you're going to favor us with a short reading, uh, just to give the readers, the listeners, a sense of the, of, of the style and, the, and the, the, the energy of your book. Well, thank you, Wayne. Uh, and and so um, uh, I'm thinking of uh, this particular uh, piece, which is my memory of my mother, uh, who was a, a teacher. She had a teacher certificate, and then she became herself an expert in early childhood education. And so this is one aspect of, of her devotion uh, to my own and my brothers. I have two brothers. Uh, the sense that, that we should become, uh, of course, literate and, and uh, uh, pass through school and excel uh, as much as possible. So this is about the incident where she takes me to get my first library card, uh, eight years old. Naturally, it was my mom who took me to the Halifax North Memorial Library in the winter of 1968 when I was eight to pick up my first library card. We lived on Maynard Street, approximately four blocks from the library, and she trusted me to get there and back with an armload of books, often twice a day. Then again, my parents knew I could leave my brothers and later Aunt Joan's daughters, my Aunt Joan's daughters, Jerry, named for my mom, and Donna, to school and back. So after that initial uh, library trip, I was free in concert with my mom's investment in Maria Montessori's teachings to make my way solo to and from that palace of vertical word imprinted spines, the pillars of imagination and information, but also that gallery of pyrotechnic book covers, each of them a stained glass window onto fantasy, sci-fi, or factual science. Uh, uh, to continue, uh, the North Branch librarian, Miss D. Adelia A. Mooney, took note of my prodigious capacity for borrowing and reading and returning 
heaps of books. And once aware of my frustration of not having anything new or interesting to read on the elementary side of the library, gave me early permission to cross over onto the adult section. Yes, I exhausted all, <coughs> excuse me, yes, I'd exhausted all the kitty holdings of Greek, Roman, and Norse myth, plus Alice and Oz and Narnia, plus World War narratives, plus all Isaac Asimov and Herbert S. Zim books on touchy-feely robots, alien worlds, and the psychopathic saber-toothed T-Rex, plus spooky books, mysteries and horrors, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Sherlock Holmes, Poe, plus Canadiana Up the Yin Yang, Pierre Burton, Sheila Brentford, Catherine Anthony Clark, and the like. Normally, one had to be 15 to borrow books from the adult wing, but Miss A. Mooney permitted me that leeway when I was 10, for she knew that she could I whatever titles that I was scouting and hold back whatever could be too amoral or immoral for my tender eyes and budding mind. I'm sure she did a responsible job of double-checking my desires, but I did take out one book, a crime, thriller, mystery, in which the fascinating, scientific-looking word pudenda appeared. It became as much of a thrill to possess as did another scientific term, tachyon, which I also acquired that summer of 1970. Thank you. Thank well, you. you. You were lucky to have such a great library close to hand. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, she was great. Miss A. Mooney was just, was just terrific and um, she, like I think a lot of the librarians in my working class part of Halifax, were thrilled uh, to have any uh, 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 young person uh, from our hood uh, mm -hmm. show a lot of interest in books, right. which were really, uh, for a lot of black and brown and working class and immigrant uh, kids and the sons and daughters of the military, of the naval, the sailors, uh, who also populated our, our area, um, uh, books were seen and book learning was seen as inimical uh, to our real lives and as mm. simply uh, alien extensions of the ruling class and the oppressor into our neighborhoods. Uh, and so uh, they weren't seen as being places of potential uplift but as extensions of the daily oppression that people uh, felt that they were experiencing. And, and ways of assimilation. You know. Exactly, ways of assimilation. Uh, let me talk about your mother for a minute. Uh, my father was, uh, was uh, African-Canadian, and he was, was light-skinned enough to pass for white, which he did. Your mother was uh, light-skinned enough, you say, to pass for white, and she decided not to. Uh, I, can you tell me something about that decision? I mean, how how she made it, or was it was it was it a big factor in your life when you were a child? Well, Wayne, first of all, I have to say hello, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Half bro. It's good, it's good to have this connection too, right? Yeah. Um, 
And and of course, because of the horrors of racism, and I'm going to answer your question directly in a moment, but because of the horrors of racism and, of course, the absolute uh, denial it could mean of anything like equality of opportunity, lots of people with African heritage, but who happen to look Caucasian quietly, moved into a Caucasian, uh, European Caucasian uh, um, world, so to speak, and passed, to use the, mm-hmm. the verb that we've often passed, uh, or often used. But, but um, my mother's situation, and actually, to still continue to answer your question, as a boy, Growing up in Halifax uh, with a father who definitely looked black, who was black, and a mother who, who looked white, I sometimes felt a little bit confused as a boy about, well, what exactly am I, where do I fit in, and so on. And neither of my parents really spoke very much to my brothers and I about being black or colored or Negro. It was just something that we knew because the church we went to was a black church. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had lots of black and brown and white relatives, or white-looking relatives, to be really clear, right? And so I, I, as a, I had the sense as a boy that, that um, there weren't really any racial barriers because my mom looked white, my father looked black, was black, and, mm-hmm. and I had lots of relatives who were everywhere on the color spectrum, from mm-hmm. ivory to copper to gold to ebony to iron. So... In my Nova Scotian uh, familial world, there were people of all complexions, and 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 seldom did anybody say I'm black. Seldom did anybody say I'm white. They just were who they were. They were my cousins, my mm-hmm. aunts, my uncles, and so on. So, uh, but the, so I didn't grow up with a sense initially of of there being any kind of rigid categories. Um, at the same time, that's true. My mother. Um, although she looked white, although she had a teacher certificate, which was a huge attainment for any black woman, mm-hmm. uh, that, any black person of that, of that time, late 50s, early 1960s, she was, Wayne, profoundly black yeah. in soul, in attitude, uh, in her likes uh, and dislikes for that matter. Now, she didn't wear any buttons or t-shirts saying, hey, it's a black thing, or I'm proud to be black. So she just lived it. It was, she was black in her music, black in her dance, black in her, in her choice of romantic partners, black in her, in her speech when she wanted to be. And, and, and was always pushing me when I was a teenager to go out with young black women, uh, preferred that I, that I date young black women. And, and that, uh, I see myself and understand myself as being black. Uh, and and uh, uh, as I mentioned already, she was uh, an expert in early childhood education. So she really wanted to nurture my imagination and my intelligence and so on. Mm-hmm. And she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she got me reading T.S. Eliot and, and uh, supported my interest in Bob Dylan and, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, she was always orienting uh, myself and my brothers towards a, a black perspective on things. Um, she grew up in the country in Windsor, uh, near Windsor, three mile plains, five mile plains, Newport Station, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, everybody there was all mixed. Uh, there were people who looked, as I was just saying, 
black and there are people who look copper and people who look like orange pineapple ice cream in my child's <laughs> mind, right? Uh, yeah. And they're all beautiful. They're all striking. Uh, yeah. uh, whether they were white or looking or black looking or whatever, they were all beautiful and, 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 and so on. And, and, uh, but there was my mom uh, totally oriented towards uh, African-American culture uh, and and song uh, and so on and cooking uh, as as well. Our cuisine was 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 very black oriented, and at the same time, my father, who again was definitely black and who was proud of himself being as a quote Negro unquote colored mm-hmm. black person and so on, was was resolutely European and and uh, uh, royalist. And and bourgeois uh, in his attitudes and his orientations, and so uh, I, as I say in the memoir, I grew up in a household uh, that was wonderfully uh, mixed in terms of culture. So my mom was like James Brown, and you got to have the Supremes and Motown and and uh, and, and so on. And then yeah. my father was no, let's get the Beethoven going and get the Brahms on and and get some opera areas going. And so, you know, and Pink Panther uh, uh, soundtrack tunes and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so our house had this, this great uh, mix, uh, almost combat. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it, it, it clashed occasionally too, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, uh, but, you know, out of that, uh, that clash, of, of different uh, cultural ideals, um, I, I I feel that I got the best of, of both, mm-hmm. and and uh, and and that made me more open minded than not. I think as a as a youth and and then as a young man, mm-hmm. uh, and also made it difficult to adopt either. Uh, strident anti-white or strident uh, pro-black posture, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because I I had relatives who yeah. looked white. I had I had aunts and uncles who were white, <laughs> so it was impossible. But you also say that you you never were quite sure that uh, of your father's love. You always knew that your mother loved you, but that but your father uh, you know fa- your father worked in, on the railroad. Uh, he spent all of his days, uh, you know, saying yes to white people and, and, uh, and the frustration of that coming home and, and, and finding, you know, coming home to a home where his wife is, was very much pro-black, but we're spending all day working in a place that was very much anti-black, that, that conflict for him seemed to have been expressed as, as, as anger and, and uh, frustration, which is difficult. Oh my golly! Yeah, it was. I, as I say in in the memoir, uh, I had a happy childhood and I had a hellish childhood, yeah. and the same person was responsible for both of those statements. <laughs> um, my father was himself. First of all, uh, he was a remarkable person. Um, here was a guy born during the depression, uh, had to leave school when he was fifteen, became an apprentice to a sign painter. And through that apprenticeship for two years, ages 15 to 17, he began to fancy himself as being an artist, an yeah. artiste. 
Yeah. And drawing and painting and, and so on and looking up the arts magazines and going to the art galleries. And, and so here he is, he's 17, 18, and he has maybe this possibility of maybe I can be an artist. I mean, this is incredible. This is like the mid-1950s. Nobody I, I know that, was, was doing that. I mean, it, yeah, mom, it blew me away when he, when he, you know, he just, he loses his job at the railroad and, and in order to get some quick cash, decides to become a painter. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Wayne, that, that sort of sums up his, his frustrations and contradictions. Right. As much as he wanted to be an artist and, and live that life, yeah. He had fear. He had too much fear about losing the, the steady income of the railway and yeah. the relative prestige of having a railway job in a community where the railway was one of the few steady employers and right. where and where porters had status as yeah. as as being practically men of God uh, yeah. simply because they had a steady job. Forget about the fact it was servile and they had to kowtow to uh, white passengers in order to get the tips and so on, supplement their meager incomes. Yeah. Still, they were seen as, as, as uh, uh, traveling uh, heroes of, of the black community. Right. Um, and so my father, he wasn't a porter. He was actually uh, just simply a railway worker and had a very humble job uh, carrying luggage to and from the trains and, and the overnight linen for the train to Montreal, and, and when the train came back to Halifax, he changed the linen then, too. So here he was, somebody who had these aspirations to be an artist, but forced into, into or, or accepting, but also driven by the apartheid structure of the Nova Scotian economy to have to work uh, at a job low, far below his capacities and his intelligence. Um, and, and so he brought home with him, I understand it, now as an adult, he brought home with him uh, his his frustration and his anger and his rage. Right. Um, and frankly, as I as I don't gloss over, gloss over it in the memoir, he took it out on us. He beat yeah. us up. He beat yeah. us uh, regularly. My mom as as well. And and for what I consider to be uh, relatively minor infractions. Um, and, and I shouldn't, you know, it wasn't every day, it wasn't every week, but it was probably half a dozen or so times a year, but we would remember and we would know. Yeah. And even when we weren't being physically disciplined in quotation marks, um, there was always the threat. The threat was always there in my home. So mm -hmm. I, I emphasize, I had a happy childhood. I did. Well, this is what I was going to say is that, you, you know, one place you say that, it was more yin and yang than polar opposites. In other words, that that the the that part that aspect of your father's behavior uh, was was more like the other side of the same coin as the the positive behavior from your mother's side and and often from your father. So it wasn't that there was black and white, and, and it was more like mixed and 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 uh, sort of something that it, which made it tolerable, I guess. Well, absolutely, because. Um, and so I, I, don't, I didn't put it in the memoir, but I only realized that this year I have no memory of, of ever actually seeing my father at work in Halifax. I wish yeah. I'd put that in the memoir, but I yeah. think he deliberately kept his, two, his three sons mm -hmm. from seeing him having to work as yeah. his, in this servile position. 
Right. He refused to let us see him in, mm-hmm. in, in that capacity. Mm-hmm. All we knew was he worked at the train station. That's all he knew. Mm-hmm. And to us, the train station was glamorous, right? And, and so we had no idea of the kind of frustrations and pressure cooker environment that he and the other black workers at the train station were under. And on my street, Maynard Street in Halifax, most of the black households, it was a mixed street, there were white, white and black households, but mm-hmm. most of the black households had a father who worked for the railway, either as a porter or as some other kind of railway function, all mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And, and they were all proud men. They all owned their own homes. Yeah. Their wives, this is really important, their wives were at home with their children. Now, uh, I totally understand uh, that that was an oppressive situation for women mm-hmm. and children as well, that there was that kind of uh, patriarchal establishment in many of these uh, black-led, black male-led households mm-hmm. in our community and in other communities as well. But Here's the thing, coming out of slavery, and we got to remember this, coming out of slavery, black people had never had the chance to say, this is my wife, this is my husband, these are my children. So for these black men to be able to say, this is my house, this is Mm -hmm. my wife, these are my children, this is my backyard, this is my garden, this is my car, Mm -hmm. and to basically have some facet of what the mainstream said was the way you're supposed to live. This was the way you were supposed to live, a nice middle-class bourgeois lifestyle. These black men and families bought into that mm-hmm. uh, notion that they could have a stable uh, two-parent fa- two household uh, with Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and the gifts under the tree and lots of food on the table and vacations in the countryside. But in order for those black men to have that, they felt they had to subject, subject their families to something that was akin to terror. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how good intention, in quotation marks, it was. And so, yeah, that model was unsustainable. But I need people to understand why Black people, not just men, Black women too, tried to put forward that kind of model for raising their children. Because... That was, the only, that was the model that they thought, again, coming out of slavery, mm-hmm. was the best way to keep their families intact. I got to say one more thing about that, Wayne, <laughs> because people don't, uh, you know, we hear about slavery and we think, yeah, yeah, okay, it was a long time ago and so on. But I got to say quickly, look at, I'm born in 1960. I am the fifth generation born outside of slavery. The mm-hmm. fifth generation born, out of, born outside of slavery. Right? That's not a long time. No. I'm born within 100 years of the end of, 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 of slavery in the United States. And yeah. so my immediate uh, forebears were, were, were finding their way through so-called liberty with a lot of segregation and racism and so on, with all of the scars of that brutal system, which tore families apart, tore mm-hmm. them apart. Oh, oh, deliberately. Oh, yeah. That was the the policy was to was to tear families apart. You know, the slave owners refused to allow their their slaves to to marry. As soon as the children were born, they were the babies were were taken away and sold. I mean, it, the whole it was policy to discourage any sense of family uh, or any sense of of community 
be, uh, because they were afraid that there would be then then some kind of uprising, right? And so it was, it was, it, and and how many generations of that, uh, and how many generations would it take to to erase the, the the memory of that or the the effects of that from from people? The irony is, of course, that that by by refusing to accept that breaking up of the family. Uh, black families imitated white families you know, with the husband going to work and the wife staying home with the kids. And, and the, the, the goal of having a car in the driveway and, a, and, and food in the table and Christmas presents, that's all sort of comes from, from, from uh, Anglo-Saxon values, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the reason why that model was so attractive was simply, again, the idea that we can have intact families. We can right. have intact genealogies, right? Yeah. And that everybody yeah, knows yeah, who everybody's yeah. father is, who everybody's mother is, and, and so yeah. on. And, and and there's, you know, dad going out to work with the lunch pail, and, and there's mom getting the supper ready. And yeah. and that, you know, there was a sense of stability to gain to make up for all of the debilitating effects of slavery, which were also right. still ongoing in the society. Because yeah. while dad can go to work with the radio and a book of poetry and his lunch pail, at the same time, he can still be called the N-word. Yeah. At the same time, yeah. his white bosses can still treat him in a very paternalistic uh, uh, fashion. And yeah. he, with his superior intellect, could only chafe and fume yeah. at, at this treatment and could never uh, strike back. Because that would mean not only losing his job, but perhaps a visit uh, uh, to a jail cell in a right. society that was still organized very much on, in essence, a slavery, or I mean, to say it more correctly, an apartheid basis. That right. there's a place for black people, and it is not with white people. Unless you're all poor working class, then it's okay. Right. Yeah. So the North End of Halifax was was mixed, and it, and it could be. You could have black and white couples. You could have black and white families or, or families with mixed race children and so on, so mm -hmm. long as we were all of the same class background. Right. So it's, it, yeah. it's, interest, it's interesting how, to me, how that, uh, you know, the, what, is a, what is a race distinction and what is a class distinction and how, and how, do, they, how do they intermingle? And you, you're saying in, in, in Halifax or in, in the areas where you were living, that they were both almost the same, right? There, it, there was more of a class distinction than a race distinction. Yes. Well, they interlocked. Right? Yeah. They interlocked. So, so that, um, uh, and this is because of the geography of Halifax, right? Not to go into all kinds of, of you know, uh, discussion your, about it, but very quickly. Your, your paper route. <laughs> yeah, my paper route. <laughs> the, the north end was where everybody who was less than mm -hmm. was warehoused. We were all warehoused. So that would include the black people of Africville, the blended communities of the North End working class, and the military families. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up on a street where, you know, there were sailors, right. on street, as well as white sailors and black railway workers. That was our, that was our middle class in quotation marks, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the kids and the wives and blah, 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 blah. And, of course, also uh, Francophones, Indigenous people, the Acadians, for instance, um, and and uh, uh, and immigrant uh, immigrants of color, especially also white immigrants, we were all placed in the North End uh, right. to mix and mingle and scrap as we wished, so long as we understood that we were all inferior 
to essentially the WASP elite of the south end of Halifax. Right. We had all the power and the vast majority of the money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of places in your, several places in your book where uh, you ask yourself, what was the point of being smart? Or what was the point of, of trying to improve yourself if at the end you were still uh, distinct, you're still, um, you know, pre the prejudice and racism was still going to try to keep you in, in, in your place, as it were. For example, when you were in public school, you, you, you and your classmates were actively discouraged by the, by the school system uh, to, from thinking about anything to do with higher education. Uh, the school, indeed, the state, you, you, and I'm quoting here, you said, coerced the children of the welfare recipient and of low-waged and military workers to accept limited minimum wage employment over achieving a high school diploma. Uh, and later, when you write about your youthful crush on, is it Uma, uh, the, 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 one of your early yeah. loves, uh, a white, young white girl, you discover, and, and her father discovers the relationship, and he forbids you, to, forbids his daughter to continue seeing you. You write that, um, you know, what, what's the point? What's the point of trying to excel? What's the point of trying to, 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 to uh, even think of yourself as being equal? when this is going to happen to you. So, but the, the title of your book and the whole tone of your book proves that there is a point, there is a way that, that, that it's worth, it is worth striving to, to, to rise above that. But where does that come from in you? Where does that, that, that need to, 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 to survive and to, to, to uh, improve come from? I, I get the, I, I, I feel that it comes from your parents, both of whom were, were not, uh, cowing, you know, not being snowed under by prejudice and, and circumstances. Yeah, it, it, it did. I think it originates with, with them. Um, one of the few statements my father ever made to me, uh, if not my brothers as well, was uh, that colored people are smarter than white, uh, the white people. I think I was seven when he said that. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of like a throwaway line. But I think he did intend for us to, or for me to understand that, and, he, and I know he did not intend it in a racist way, but to, to give us a little bit of, of support and backbone uh, uh, spirit to, to realize that no matter how much others might try to put us down, that we might still be able to transcend those limitations. Right. I, I think that's another reason why he didn't want to see us. He didn't want us to see him um, uh, working in, in a low level position because in our home, he was majesty and he was uh, a, a, um, uh, an intellectual uh, without apology, unapologetically yeah. uh, an intellectual, able to converse on world politics and, and domestic uh, politics and, um, race relations, civil rights movement, uh, uh, movies and records, and 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 uh, and to give very learned opinions on on everything, and encourage us to branch out and and really think about the world, and 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 the uh, and the value of movement that we should be we should feel free to go anywhere we wanted that was public property in Halifax. He right. insisted on that, right? That. Even it was just to walk, that we were going to walk everywhere, we were going to go everywhere. Nobody's going to tell us we couldn't go here, couldn't go there. So there was that sense that that we could venture. And and uh uh and my mom as well was was uh 
uh, uh, very supportive of, of those ideas that we could that we could create, that we could do art, that that and again explore parks and gardens and 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 all of that. But at the same time, there was also the example of my great aunt Portia yeah. White. Portia White. And my father and his mother uh, Nettie made mm-hmm. sure that my brothers and I knew all about this. Uh, the first international Black Canadian star of music or song, to be precise, the contralto. And, yeah. and the fact that she sang before the Queen. She sang before Queen Elizabeth II. There's the photograph. You know, and, and there she is in, in being, being, uh, uh, having her hand shaken by the, by the Queen as she curtsies a little bit and, and, and so on, right? So, yeah. uh, and so that was the symbol. That was the symbol of... It. You can be next to royalty. Don't worry. You know, <laughs> you know your great aunt yeah. did it. My aunt did it. You can do it too. So, yeah. and and the fact that you know we can turn on the radio and there's Lauren Green singing uh, his hit Ringo, mm-hmm. right? And then my dad could say, "Oh yeah, well he's one of your aunt, uh, my one of my aunt uh, Portia's pupils." And there's right. Lauren Green's voice coming out the radio <laughs> in our kitchen, and we're like, yeah. "Oh, that guy on the ra- that who's saying that song." He's a pupil of our, of our great aunt. Mm-hmm. Portia White teach, taught him how to sing, how to speak. Wow. That's yeah. powerful stuff when you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, right? Or, right. or to have Dinah Christie or, yeah. or Robert Goulet, all people who, who had lessons with her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then to know that, oh, she went to Panama and she went to uh, 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 Peru and she, and, she, and, uh, uh, and she and she sang at Town Hall in New York City. Wow, right. you know. Uh, so I had those those touchstones as well to say. Well, you know what? Maybe maybe we can accomplish more than this society expects us to right. or would like us to. Right. And and those are certainly lessons that I that I took to her. And then I had a whole series of mentors, black and white. When I was seventeen to nineteen, mm-hmm. really just took me under their wings, under their wings, plural, and said, yeah. "You know, study this, read that, go here, you know, listen to this." This is Walt Walt uh, Walt Borden. Uh, Walter Borden, yeah, yeah. Walt yeah. Uh, uh, Rocky Jones, his his wife Joan, right. yeah, uh, Jackie Barkley, uh, and of course Sylvia Hamilton, who later became a filmmaker and and her husband uh, Bev Greenlaw, mm-hmm. um, and and so together they they basically filled in all the gaps, and they were huge gaps from the educational yeah. system, from the school system. Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> what, what, was there a danger in your mind or in your experience uh, of the corollary of of that, and that is that by 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 educating yourself and 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 becoming artistic and writing poems, that you were somehow alienating yourself from your own community for from people who were not doing that kind of that kind of work uh was was i mean there's there's a there's a i i it's i feel that there's a, a danger of sort of ending up between two communities you know sort of between the white community and the and the black community for, uh, did, were you aware of that or did, did that occur to you at all oh yeah that was a huge tension Right. As I was trying, as I was trying to suggest earlier, talking about the library and and reading and, and learning and so on, and I think this is true for any community that finds itself under oppression. Mm-hmm. To have 
anyone from that community accede to, to use a, a phrase that would have been used back then, the white man's education, the white man's yeah. learning, the white man's yeah. books, the white man's schools. Right. And we can think of the whole residential school, uh, uh, cultural genocidal activities as an example of that. That if, that if black and indigenous and other uh, marginalized minorities accept uh, the teachings of, of, of the WASP or Francophone Catholic uh, elite and their establishments, that now we, those who become educated in those, in those protocols of, of being and doing and, and thinking, will then become separated out, will become, in fact, white uh, from a yeah. black community or even indigenous community uh, aspect and will be of no more use to the community, but in fact become part of the oppressor class right. who would then use us or people like us to further oppress our community while siphoning right. off all those of, of uh, promise, in quotation marks, to continue the machinery of oppression. They can say, look, the system works, right? Exactly. You become yeah. the token, right? Yeah. Like, as proof, as you just said, Wayne. The yeah. system isn't all bad. There's room. If you work hard, if you study hard, if you yeah. play by the rules, you too can be whatever, right? Yeah. So that is a, a, a great temptation. And the rewards are significant. Uh, the honors, higher pay, uh, mm -hmm. higher salary, uh, respect, uh, and so on. But I, but I think that for many of us, or maybe I just want to speak for myself, um, I've always, uh, I think one of the other great, turning points in my life was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. I was going to, I was to come to Malcolm X in a minute. I got to send a shout out to the bro <laughs> because uh, uh, as problematic as Malcolm's thinking and his autobiography is, uh, there's an analysis of how oppressed communities can get bought off or how people can be brought to betray their own mm. communities uh, that I ended up taking to heart. Mm. And also the further analysis that just because you do become accomplished in one way or another, and you have the degrees and you have the certificates and you have the laurels and the awards, it does not stop you from still being black. It does not prevent you from being black. And for anybody who stops me when I'm driving my car, or wants to follow me around in a store, they don't need to know that I'm a member of the Order of Canada. They don't need to know that. All they yeah. see is there's a black guy in my shop. I don't believe I can trust him to actually make a purchase and, and, and well, pay for it and making the purchase. And he yeah. must be here to do something nefarious. Or why is he walking down the street in my neighborhood? Why is he yeah. driving that kind of car? Or she driving that kind of car? These are the questions that I still have to contend with every day regardless of having a wall full of certificates and, and uh, a lot of appreciation from a lot of different people from around the world, for crying out loud. But that doesn't stop me from experiencing racism uh, when I step outside my door, walking down, right. driving my car, uh, teaching my classes, going in and out of the University of Toronto. None of that. So I have no reason to, to discard my community allegiance. And besides, you know, I got to say it, look at it. I am a child of the North End of Halifax. I'm a <laughs> North End Haligonian. I know what that's all about. It's like coming from Northside Philadelphia or, or whatever, right? And, or coming from Chocolate City, D.C. 
you know when you grow up in those kinds of communities, what's what and who's who and why 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 is why right uh, and and you conduct yourself accordingly. So when I uh, just to give a quick anecdote to explain this further, when I uh, completed my doctorate at Queen's University in 1993, I was the the first. African Nova Scotian, Africanian in at least a generation and a half to actually earn a PhD. The last person to do that before me was the theologian um, Peter Paris from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, ended up at Princeton Theological uh, Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but he, and he got his PhD sometime uh, from the University of Chicago, uh, or Dr. Divinity degree sometime in the later 60s, uh, early 70s. So I was the next one along for my community. And probably, you know, number six or seven in the entire 200 years of, of Africadian history to earn that degree. Uh, but I didn't have, my phone, as I like to say, my phone wasn't ringing. My right. phone wasn't ringing. People were saying, oh, you got to be, you got to be, oh, let's give you a job here, Dr. Clark. No, no, no. <laughs> the phone wasn't ringing. Um, but I, of course, informed my family that I was now Dr. Clark. And my father, the, my the professor, the professor, my the professor. Not professor. I was just, just <laughs> not yet, but not professor, just a doctor, right? But that that was your nickname when you were a kid, right? The oh, professor. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, Wayne. That's right. It was my nickname when I was a kid. So, uh, so there I was. Now I was a, a, almost a real professor. It could be, yeah. Um, and my mom came to the convocation at at Queens, and she said she had tears in her eyes for crying out loud, you know. Wow. So, so uh, uh, my aunt Joan, my uncle Rex, they also came too to that to that ceremony, and and uh, but my phone wasn't ringing. Nobody was 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 interested in giving me a job, teaching job, mm-hmm. uh, or even having me apply for one. But I I, uh, I I let everybody know in in the in my family and community that I had achieved this little distinction and a PhD and the honorific of DR in front of my name. Mm-hmm. And and so I I was invited to go to a reception on a bitterly cold, frigid Saturday night, January 1994. I still don't have a job offered, and and uh, and it's bitterly cold. But when I arrive in Halifax and go to the North End Library where this reception was was being held, I saw my face on lampposts, on posters on lampposts all over the North End, saying, come and meet Dr. George Elliott Clark. Wow. That's the community. The community said, come and meet our, our PhD, our doctor. It was like I was a boxer for crying out loud. Like I had just defeated somebody in the ring. Come and meet him. And so a hundred folks showed up, poets, dancers, singers, musicians, uh, including my mentors, all showed up uh, to say, congratulations. Look at this achievement, right? And nobody thought, oh, you've got a doctor. Now you you think you're better than everybody else? No, no, no. As a matter of fact, and, and for me, it's it's very important. I still tell people when I go back to Nova Scotia, Halifax, North End. Now people say, Doctor, Doctor Clark, and I say, No, no, it's Georgie, and they say, No, no, it's Doctor Clark, right? right? Like you know, yeah. I never, I never lost that connection. I never did. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I want to 
talk a bit about the role of music. It, music runs as a theme through the whole book, and it's and I, I don't know. I just want to say I don't know if you've seen the movie that's on in the in the theaters right now. It's called The Summer of Soul. Uh, it's a fabulous movie. It's about a it, it's a documentary of of a, of a, uh, a cultural festival. The, the um, uh, the, sorry, I'm losing my mind here. But it's a black music. Uh, music festival that took place in in Harlem in 1969, the same year as 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 uh, Woodstock, except no one's ever heard of it, right? But oh, all of wow. the big, all of the all of the big black musicians were there. Uh, all the soul, you know, BB King and and Stevie Wonder, and and uh, it was just just amazing. It's a great movie thing, a great music video film, but it's also. At one of the at one point, somebody said in the 1969 was the year that we stopped being Negro and started being black, and and I think that that was that. I, there's a lot of that in your book uh, that you know the, that that black is you know black is 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 great, and uh, it's time it's time that we stop calling ourselves Negroes and started and started referring to ourselves as black black. There's a lot of black power in your book. <laughs> um, and I, I, uh, <laughs> I know there's a bit of hindsight there, but but at the time, did you feel that the when you, so you were nine years old in 1969, so you weren't in Harlem at this festival, but but the effect of that, you must did you feel the effect of that in Canada, of of that movement? Well, Wayne, you didn't uh, read Malcolm. You didn't read Malcolm X until 1974, right? So, well, well, yeah, actually, it was a bit later than that. Seventy seventy eight. Okay. I, was, I first um, and, and really started to read uh, Malcolm's work, but but um, the thing is 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 that is that we have people in, in Halifax like Rocky Jones and Joan Jones, mm -hmm. and Rocky, in fact, as of 1968, founded the only Canadian chapter of the Black Panther Party in Halifax. Right? Look at all the histories of the Black Panther Party. There's one chapter in Canada. It's in Halifax, and right. it was basically Rocky's house. <laughs> which was a yeah. great commune, a great yeah. commune of progressive and intellectual, uh, 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 socialist, uh, left-leaning, communist, agitational uh, uh, thought mm -hmm. going on, along with what? curry and red wine and, <laughs> and so on, right? It was very attractive, happy right. place to be, smell yeah. coconut and curry and, and whatnot. So... Um, but so Rocky's influence was great, and it was, and he was actually channeling uh, not just Malcolm X, but also Martin Luther King, also Stokely Carmichael, as he was then called Kwame Torre. Yeah, and and he was bringing all that to Little Halifax, Nova Scotia, and scared, scared, frightened the daylights out of the white community, who were really afraid that there was going to be this black major black uprising in Halifax. Right. Uh, to overthrow uh, uh, the white supremacist practices and attitudes in the city. That never happened, but it was uh, in Rocky's interest and our interest to put that, keep that possibility open and alive in front of the white power structure mm -hmm. uh, so that they would give concessions uh, in order to try to make sure that there wouldn't be a violent uh, uprising. Uh, at the same time, that's true. Most... African Nova Scotians, Africadians, to use my word, were uh, essentially church-going, hard-working, uh, essentially go-along-to-get-along um, folks who, who 
uh, we're, we're thrilled to hear Rocky put down um, uh, the racism and, and the, the white supremacist attitudes. Right. But we're very careful not to show any kind of real support for fear that, that, that there could be repercussions. They lose their jobs or, or right. what have you, right? The same, same as your dad at the railroad, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. the same. So, but nevertheless, the young, and these would be people who are like basically the baby boomers, 10 years older than me, all right, yeah. well, really flocked to that. Because because they could see the necessity of a civil rights movement of a of a black power movement even in Halifax they could see that right. and and so there was Rocky encouraging that and so uh, the idea of blackness becoming the, the 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 way that we would understand ourselves was a very slow uh, very slow in coming uh, in fact I think it probably got adopted in in Nova Scotia by most. African Nova Scotians uh, uh, a little bit later than 1969. Uh, to say you were black when I was a boy, those are fighting words because black meant you were African, black meant you were backward. Uh, right. you, were, you were supposed to be as white as possible under the circumstances. Uh, that was that was the prevailing opinion in order to keep your job and, and go along to get along. Right. Uh, and so Rocky's rhetoric about, no, you are black which is again a borrowing from, from Malcolm, was threatening to many black people, not just white people. Right. But nevertheless, slowly but surely, the Afro started to appear. The dashiki started to appear. Yeah. The, the black power fist started to appear. People started to understand, especially again, the young going to university, the first mm -hmm. generation really to get anything like a kind of mass access to education, especially at Dalhousie University, began to imbibe all the same uh, radical, in quotation marks, uh, uh, works that had informed Rocky, were informing Rocky's thought and Joan's thought. I talk a lot about Rocky, but Joan was always there uh, providing the strategy and the tactics, and for that matter, the library. Uh, <laughs> if you look at Rocky Jones's uh, biography, autobiography, he makes the point there that he only came to a black consciousness because Joan forced him to read. <laughs> Joan forced him to read. In fact, her father told Rocky, you will not get anywhere with my daughter, Joan, unless you become yourself educated about, about black history and black culture and politics of anti-racism and so on. And so Joan was the one who, who got Rocky uh, thinking more in a, in a pro-black way. And then Rocky and Joan together and Walter Borden uh, mm -hmm. Begin to disseminate these ideas to uh, black youth in Nova Scotia, 1960s, 19 into the 1970s. Um, so certainly, by the time I'm in my later teens, everybody's got an afro, everybody's mm -hmm. calling themselves black, and mm -hmm. there's almost no I no memory of the fact there was ever a struggle over it. It was the most natural thing in the right. world, right? And Negro and color just kind of like disappeared. Um, and then by the 1990s, where like African Nova Scotian starts to come in and, and is the preferred moniker, although there's also one other that is operative in Nova Scotia, and that is what for many is a very strange uh, uh, combo word, and that is uh, well, almost combo, indigenous black, hmm. indigenous black. And that raises hackles with uh, blacks who are immigrants and say, how dare you call yourselves yeah. indigenous when you are simply uh, 
earlier immigrants. And then for indigenous people, so everybody's earlier immigrants. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, everybody is. Yeah, except and indigenous people. But that's right. And so then indigenous people also can say, "How dare you call yourselves indigenous? We're right. indigenous. You're not indigenous." Yeah. But what the reason why that phrase came into use and is in use by governments and educational institutions is because there is a difference between more recent black immigrants to mm -hmm. Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and the historical black population in Nova Scotia. Right. Uh, so indigenous became, a, I'll put it in, in quotation marks, indigenous mm -hmm. became a way to describe the historical black landholding. That's very important, landholding community. Right. That was actually a series of communities, several dozen all around mainland uh, Nova Scotia and even touching on Glace Bay, Sydney, uh, Cape Breton, mm -hmm. uh, and that there had to be a way to demarcate ourselves from more recent arrivals who actually often had a great class advantage mm -hmm. over, over the so-called indigenous black population. And that's something that, that is only now beginning to be addressed in terms of historiography, in terms of the sociology, because a lot of people, white and black, look at the black community and they just see a monolith. They say, oh, they're all black. They're all black together. Right. Without understanding that, in fact, no, there's a great deal of difference between uh, someone who arrives as a, a Jamaican lawyer. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's black and he's, and he's a lawyer and he's Jamaican. Um, and and a, a, uh, a day laborer in Africville. The day laborer in Africa has got grade three, maybe grade six, and he owns or she owns her own house. Right. Uh, the, uh, the lawyer from Jamaica is the same complexion, same color, accent's different, but what's really different is the class orientation. Yeah. And that Jamaican lawyer might actually look down upon the black day laborer who's only got grade three. Yeah. And, is, and is working a very a precarious job. So what do they actually have in common? Yeah, there's the experience of racism, which is easier for the Jamaican-born lawyer to mitigate. He's got ways to deal with that. He can, he can use the legal system, for one thing, and he can probably uh, parlay a relatively high salary in comparison to his Africville black comrade, so to speak, in quotation marks, mm -hmm. into ways and means of making his life a little better, despite the pervasiveness of white racism. Um, it, whereas the day laborer from Africville does not have access to those same means. And in fact, is soon going to find himself, herself thrown out of their home that they may have inhabited through generations since 1815, um, uh, with nobody being able to come to their assistance, including the Jamaican lawyer, who, in right. fact, takes the position of you're living in a slum. Instead of seeing that it's actually a black community, the Jamaican lawyer, who means well, comes to look at Africa and sees a slum. There's it's that not there's, a black community. There's that, that race-class distinction again, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. And that helps make things complicated and very complex. So your your phrase your, that you invented, Africadian, uh, deals with that to some extent, right? 
Yeah, uh, because I, I, wanted, I wanted to be able to say that we have a specific culture that is rooted in the uh, several dozen communities that were forced upon us, our ancestors, because when Blacks arrived in Nova Scotia, 1760, 1783, 1796, uh, War of 1812, and then for the Cape Breton community, early 20th century, the work in the coal mines and the steel mills of industrial Cape Breton. Right. Uh, every single one of those communities was a segregated apartheid structured community where you had a, a black village, in essence, outside of, for the most part, a larger white town. And from the black village, every day, there would be a trickle of laborers, unskilled and, and basically uneducated, illiterate and unskilled, going to work in the white town. The white town would exploit that labor for the cheapest wages possible. Um, and some of those white towns, like New Glasgow and Digby, actually had laws on their municipal laws that said, if you are black, you must be out of town by sundown. Really? Uh, these, yes, really. These laws were operative until the 1960s. So you see how the economy, socioeconomic structure of our communities was set up on an apartheid basis. Yeah. In fact, South Africa studied uh, Canada's reservation system and specifically Africa mm. in order to structure apartheid in the, as of 1948 with the National Party coming into power in South Africa. So that was our our reality and it was reinforced by uh attitudes you didn't you didn't need to have a law uh i read recently a memoir where the author uh mentioned that although it was new glasgow that if you were in new glasgow after dark and you were a black male roving bands of white men and youth would reinforce that that um uh proviso by beating you up and running you out of town wow uh, and and uh, and the social attitudes as well would would, would reinforce those uh, that sense of isolation. But to get to the point of, of of all this, because those communities were segregated, because they were deliberately set up on the worst possible land, um, it, it meant and because often people were not given title to the to those lands. And I want to undergird all of the above with the statement that all lands are, in my view. Uh, stolen from indigenous people. Right. I need to I need to say that. But nevertheless, these are the lands that that uh, incoming black migrants were given by racist colonial white governments, uh, without anybody checking to see if the Mi'kmaq nation uh, would agree to that or not. But that's the way it happened 200 plus years ago. But the upshot of all that was that. Um, over the next couple hundred years, something called Africadia begins to develop. Something mm -hmm. called Black Nova Scotia begins to develop. And it's developed based on the association of these separate Black communities that were themselves never segregationist. It wasn't Black people who said, nobody else can live with us. Mm -hmm. It was white people who said, we don't want Black people living with us. Mm -hmm. right? So... So our communities were never segregated, were never self-segregated, is what I'm trying to say. There were white people who married into our communities. There were indigenous people 
who came into our communities and preferred to be in, in our communities because of the pervasiveness of white racism, right? So, uh, so the conjunction of indigenous, European, African, admixture in these rural, uh, for the most part, rural uh, locales meant that you had separate forms of music, separate forms of speech, separate forms of worship develop. And that's especially true given the creation of the African Baptist Association in 1853. Uh, and, and so the beauty of all this was despite the oppression and the brutality, especially of police and so on, uh, in your own community, you could feel free. I mean, I love the idea that Duke Ellington in coming to Halifax would go to Africville. There's a photograph of Duke sitting on a sofa in Africville, flanked by his, his, uh, wife's, fa uh, his wife's family, uh, for crying out loud, right? You know, that's, that's priceless. Or, or, or um, um, uh, when uh, Joe Lewis, the brown bomber, comes to, comes to Halifax and is told that he can stay at the Lord Nelson Hotel because he's special, he says, no, take me to where the black people are. And he goes and he stays in Africville. So in the, in the black communities around Nova Scotia, I mean, the fact, Wayne, I can say, Weymouth Falls, I can say, Windsor Plains, I can say, Lucasville, Upper Big Trackety, Sunningville, East Preston, North Preston, Cherry Brook, Lake Loon. And these are all distinctly, for the most part, majority black communities in the countryside. And the fact that people would, would, would get on trucks and backs of trucks and go around Nova Scotia do their, to do their courting uh, and so on. Go from church to church to church and pick up the, the, the ladies from the choir or the ladies auxiliary and, and do their courting so that people from Windsor might meet somebody from East Preston or somebody from Mount Dense might meet somebody from, from Lakeel. And in this way, of course, the gene pool gets dispersed a little bit around the province. Uh, but at the same time, that also helps a local sense of culture to develop and a sense that we are a distinct group of African diasporic peoples in the North Atlantic. <laughs> That's amazing. And your book reflects that, 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 that sense very, very well. I mean, I, it, it was a real revelation, a real education for me to read that, even though it's essentially an old story. But it's it's a new story, and you made it you made it come alive for for, for this reader, and I'm sure. And now my my last question, because I'm afraid we are out of time, but my last question is this: this book, uh, where beauty survived, takes us up to you graduating from high school. Uh, are we are we in breathless anticipation of volume two when you arrive at the <laughs> University of Waterloo? <laughs> uh, let's hope so. Um, you know, I know that there's a certain thing called book sales that might be determinative here. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> but uh, I have to say, Wayne, having done, having done one mm -hmm. uh, and having forgotten about some things I, I should have included, um, I would love to have another opportunity to, to go over some of the uh, uh, subsequent years and and, yeah. and some other events that have taken place uh, in my life. Um, and, and, uh, but now I'm, I'm looking very quickly through the text to see if there's that poem I might be able to read uh, as, a, as a final. Uh, yeah, that uh, would be Look Homeward Exile. Look Homeward Exile. 
I was musing on Savannah and Three Mile Plains when I wrote this poem six years later in Amsterdam that I knew was significant. An amalgam of Rita Dove and Alden Nolan, Angela Jackson and A.Y. Jackson of the Group of Seven, Gene Toomer and John Milton, blank verse blackened, Thomas Wolfe and Howlin' Wolf, and mandolins and locomotives, a lot of mixed motives, a combo of decasyllabic beauty and delirium tremens pain. Look homeward, exile. I can still see that soil crimsoned by butchered hog and imbrued with rye, lie, and homely spirituals everybody must know. Still dream of folks who broke or cracked like shale, Pushkin, who twisted his hands in boxing, Morocco who ran girls like dogs and got stabbed. Lavinia, her teeth decayed to black stumps, her love-making still in demand, spitting black phlegm, her pension after 20 towns, and tooth suckled on anger that no Baptist church could contain, who let wrinkled Ely seed her moist womb when she was just 13. And the tyrant sun that reared from barbed wire spewed flame that charred the idiot crop to depression and hurt my granddaddy to bottle after bottle of sweet death, his dreams beaten to one tremendous pulp until his heart seized, choked, his love gave out. But beauty survived, secreted in freight trains snorting in their pins, in babes whose faces were cold black mirrors, in strange drummers who stroked Ghanaian banjos hummed, blind blues precise rich needlepoint, in sermons scorched with sulfur and brimstone, and in my love's dark orient skin that smelled like orange peels and tasted like rum. Good God! I remember my creator in the old ways. I sit in taverns and stare at my fists. I knit earth into bread, spell water into wine. Still nothing warms my wintry exile. Neither prayers nor fine love, neither votes nor hard drink. For nothing heals those saints felled in green beds whose loves are smashed by just one word or glance or pain, a screw jammed in thick, straining wood. That was great. And it's perfect ending for this conversation. And also the source of the title of your book, Where Beauty Survived. Thank you for this. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Wayne. Best wishes. God bless. I hope we have a chance to meet in person and converse further. That was Wayne Grady in conversation with George Eliot Clark about his latest book, Where Beauty Survived, an Africadian memoir. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without you. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.